0: So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team,
1: Well, welcome along to this latest Lords Cricket Podcast, Aussie Dominance and England's Revival. I'm your host Will Rowe and in this episode, which is in association with Wisdom Cricket Monthly, we'll look at the ashes through the 90s as Australia ruled supreme and how that all changed in 2005 when Michael Vaughan's England signed regained the Urn. We're here in the England dressing room at Lords where I'm joined by former England fast bowler Simon Jones. Welcome Simon. Thank you. Also on the podcast, writer and journalist Emma John. Hello. Nice to have you here. And also joining me is cricket journalist Joe Harmon of Wisdom Cricket Monthly. I will. Nice to have you along, guys. Um, We're here in the England dressing room, a pretty special room in Lord's Cricket Ground. But in 1989, I'm just going to take the story back to then, uh, Australia come to these shores. They're considered to be possibly one of the worst ever sides to tour England, according to the English media. They lose the series 4-0. That's England, not Australia. <laughs> and what then happens is probably the most dominant period of ashes ever as Australia win the next eight series in a row. 28 tests win, seven England wins and eight draws in all of that. Uh, the place where we're sitting must have been a pretty tough place for England's cricketers in the 90s.
2: Oh, massively. Um, what are the words there from the press saying it's the, the worst Aussie side they've ever seen and they won 4-0, so... Uh, it's a bit worrying when I do things like that but yeah as an Englishman in the 90s it's hard work um, you look back at, I've played with a lot of those lads that experienced that, that mental scarring and the Aussies were an exceptional side at the time they dominated world cricket and um, yeah it was painful to be an English fan I
1: Emma mean, you've written a book on this Painful to be an English
3: fan. I have. It was actually, it was probably one of the first books written about 90s cricket, you know, from an England fan's point of view, and there's a good reason for that, because there really wasn't much to celebrate. And um, yeah, it's a funny old time. It's one I think a lot of us look back on with with a great nostalgia, actually. Um, in that in that way that you know Nick Hornby looks back on on the, the dreadful Arsenal years with with a fond nostalgia because actually if you if you survived as an England fan through the nineties that meant you, you were you were you know a true true supporter.
4: Yeah, I think certainly growing up watching cricket in the early nineties expectations kind of shifted. So I I wasn't really looking for England to win Test matches against Australia. That seemed just too unlikely. You might win one mm. at the end of a series. <laughs> It was about individuals doing something brilliant to kind of sockets the Aussies as much as they possibly could. So, those are my kind of fondest memories. It was only when you came around to kind of 2005 and you thought, actually, we can, we can beat these guys, that the expectations shifted again. And now we kind of go into most series expecting Twin in Ashes, or at least expecting it to be competitive.
1: Yeah, we'll come on to 2005 in the second half of the podcast. It's interesting what you say there, Joe. Um, You're almost echoing the thoughts of former England captain Mike Atherton. He he said of his career, (laughs) decent, yeah. (laughs) To win any game against Australia is always special because they are such a good side. Simon, you grew up sort of watching that side Mm. in the in the nineties, and and you touched on it a moment ago. You you, you Mm. found out from playing with some of those guys later how tough those Aussies were to play against. Um, that, that side in 89 which came to England to start that dominance you know it was led by Alan Border. you had um, Steve Wall was in that side I think a young Mark Taylor was just making his way it's hardly a bad side
2: I used to watch back and think how oh, the hell do you bowl to these guys uh, it must have been a tough ask as an England bowler uh, to be expected to, to take 20 wickets but it was just one of those things you know the Aussies had such a good side for so many years um, and when we came, came to play them in 2002 and 2005 they have just they were dominating the world of cricket, uh, and that was just through sheer hard work, gusto, and arrogance at times.
3: <laughs> it's interesting that that '89 side and um, people saying that there was an expectation that they would lose. I, I don't really know where that expectation came from. I mean, actually, '89 was just a little bit before my era, so so somebody else, you know, would probably know this better than me. But um, I think at that stage, England actually. In terms of what, in terms of their uh, win loss, were, were poorer than that Australian side. I think that the stats were that since the eighty five tour, England had played thirty four tests. Uh, they'd won three and they'd lost fifteen. Um, whereas Australia had played thirty. They'd won five and they'd lost nine. So where where the assumption that England might easily beat that eighty nine side came from? I'm not sure. I think that was more, more hope than, than real expectation. Wishful thinking. Yeah.
1: It was the media, Joe. Well, they don't always
3: get <laughs> things right.
4: I think that's, that's been shown. Perhaps I saw Jim Maxwell saying it's the worst England side that's ever arrived in Australia for this series, so perhaps he'll be eating his words in a couple of months' time. Absolutely, well I realise that so far in a podcast which we've dedicated to
1: 90s dominance by Australia We've only talked about 1989 uh, We'll fast forward a few years to a very special delivery uh, I think we know what's coming up 1993 Old Trafford um, just, when thing, well, just when England thought things couldn't get any worse A certain Shane Keith Warren uh, steps onto the Ashes scene And here he is recalling at a dinner um, What happened for that ball of the century?
0: And we come out after the break, and Alan Border said, look, start up after the break. So Mike's on strike, Mike Gatting's on strike, Merv uses it mid-off, I'm standing at the top of my mark, and I sort of, Dickie Bird says play. So I stand there, sort of a little bit nervous, hoping to get the ball down the other end, and Merv just sort of said, just give us one of those things that go really fast and straight, he won't be expecting it. I said, shut up, Merv, I just want to sort of land the bloody thing. <laughs> Take a deep breath, look around. And he goes, bowl one of those funny things that go the other way. <laughs> I said, Merv, can you just shut up, for you, please? I'm trying... <laughs> Alan borders is a cover over here, and he said, mate, is there any danger of you bowling the ball? <laughs> I said, look, Skip, I'm sorry, I'm just a little bit nervous. So I've just got to take my time, take a deep breath. He said, well, OK, just hurry up. <sighs> bowl one of those big turning ones, Merv. <laughs> Rightio, Merv. So I come in, take a step, and it uh, doesn't say anything, bowl the ball... Gat sort of makes me look really good, and sort of of follows the the drift a little bit. And you know, if it had been a sandwich or something, he probably wouldn't have missed it. But (laughs) he misses the ball and um, hits the top of the stump. Seeing Healy was over here somewhere. He starts jumping around and all that sort of stuff. We all run in and then Merv sort of sticks his tongue in my ear and said, told you, told you, just buy one of those things. It's, um, it's not that hard. And so that was my sort of first ball to Mike Gatting, which um, it was a bit of a fluke, but um, it was pretty special too, yeah.
1: Shane Warne there at Lord's uh, at a bicentenary dinner, nonetheless, recalling that famous ball of the century with the characters of Merv Hughes and Alan Border. So that's 1993. The Australians are dominant in that series. Warne is now in the side, this sort of Aussie side is getting stronger and stronger and England are sort of thinking what to do 1997 series I've kind of dubbed this the series where hope is destroyed because it starts so well for England
4: yeah I mean I think we can forget actually how many talented cricketers England had during that time because they were up against such a talented Australian side and, and they won that first test with, with Nasser scoring a double century Thorpe scoring a century as well I think yeah 138 in, yeah. in that first test Um won the match and suddenly you have this this belief that actually this Australian side aren't so invincible after all. Uh, as we know it didn't quite <laughs> quite work out that way. They were lucky to escape with a draw at Lords. I think a heavily rain affected draw at Lords. Yeah. Is that right? And then, a then heavily and then
1: they, rain affected and I think the other thing is that that match in um, the match at Edgebats in England win but then come to Lords and Glenn McGrath sort of starts his love affair with this ground, uh, eight for 38, and England have bowled out for 77. Mm. So suddenly, I mean, talk although about momentum the, shifting. Momentum
3: did shift, although we, we do kind of write off that laws test, but I think Mark Butcher and Mike Atherton did put on a 162-run partnership or something like that to, to, to help save that game. So, yeah, the, the rain definitely helped England, um, but they, they, did, they did put up a little, you know, more of a fight than we were used to. I, I would say um, from the nineties. I, I think ninety-seven was also interesting because the context of of where that series started was really interesting. Mark Taylor um, was having a terrible time and and couldn't buy a run and had dropped himself from the one-day series. And then England, that of course had won the one-day series three-nil, so there was um, and I remember it very well. This 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 real um, sense of optimism um, among the team and the fans uh, because, I mean, for a start, we'd won a one-day series against Australia. <laughs> that, was no, that was no small thing. And, um, and, and, and it did feel like if, if, the, if it was ever going to happen, this was, this was the summer that it was going to happen. One of the words that comes up again and again throughout the 90s is confidence. Yeah. And it's something that Australia had and England didn't and i even think if you look back to that shane warne delivery that that in 1993 and you look at what that did um to england um that that's fascinating too when when it when warne bowls that ball i think england are 80 for 1 in reply to 289 um all out so it's not We think we go back and we think of these things as kind of given and that there's some kind of fate about them. You know, Australia were always going to do this to us. And sure, there were reasons why they were always going to do this to us. There was the the fact that their sport was so well funded and, and their system was so well set up and ours was a total shambles. But um, there were also these times when actually England were going quite well and then something happens and, and England lose their confidence and, and things start falling around I, th- I think
2: the main thing for me with, with confidence is if your side is changing all the time, which it was in the 90s, yeah. you probably get one or two tests and they were gone. Yeah. There was no <laughs> chance likely to do now. We give them five, six tests, seven tests to find their feet, find their confidence, feel comfortable in the changing rooms. That's gone that was gone in night. 90s, it wasn't even there. Yeah. So these lads who were coming in and out all the whole time, the changing wasn't settled. You're playing against a very good Aussie side. As we said earlier, Emma said they were confident. Yeah, they're confident because they're all playing in the same changing room all the time. They're confident, they know each other's roles. There's a good um,
4: example there of being, uh, the selectors having faith in you and that Steve Waugh, um, you say McGrath's Hall at Lord's, but Steve Waugh's twin hundreds at Old Trafford in the third test were what really turned the series in Australia won three tests on the bounce. Now, Steve Ward didn't score a Test 100 for 27 matches. But they saw something in him. They stuck with him. 27 tests without a 100 is kind of a, is incredible. That wouldn't have been heard of, would it? It's <laughs> yeah, incredible, incredible, really. Two
2: tests over here. Also,
3: it, yeah, to back up what Simon said, in 93, Craig McDermott had to go home with an injury. Um, and Alan Borden didn't even replace him. That's, how, that's no. how confident that side was. They didn't need to send for a replacement. And Merv Hughes, if you look at their bowling attack, it was, you know, on the, the pace side... Murph Hughes was their only strike bowler you know they just knew that their backup mm. bowlers were, were that good that they would see him through and then obviously Warren came through and you know bowled an incredible number of overs which is again really impressive when you remember that we've always sort of joked it about him not being very fit <laughs> he, mm. he bowled a huge number of mm. overs had incredible staying power um, and then you look at what happened whenever England got an injury um, and there was this scramble sheer panic panic, panic exactly yeah.
1: Just touching on your point, Emma, about kind of almost like the revisionism of history, of looking back and, you know, oh, well, it's always going to go that way. Uh, Joe, there was the Test Series in 98, uh, Down Under, where England were actually going into that uh, with a chance of drawing the series, at least. Yeah, so in 98-99,
4: yeah, they won at Melbourne, um, Dean Headley taking a lot of wickets, Darren Goff as well. So they went into that final test in Australia down so they couldn't reclaim the ashes but they could have drawn the series out there which at that time would have been a phenomenal achievement against still a a very, very strong Australian side kind of around its peak really, coming into its peak Um, and that's again kind of forgotten until 10-11 we kind of think oh we just kind of got beaten every time there and that wasn't always the case
1: Yeah, because England had some, some great players during this period do you think there was just maybe a kind of Australia almost got better in terms of by 2001 the Aussie side reads Slater, Hayden, Ponting, Mark Waugh, Steve Waugh, Martin, Gilchrist, Warren Lee, Gillespie and McGrath. That's the side they're coming over with in 01 and England's confidence is or confidence throughout the 90s is just slowly getting eroded. So you have these almost two factors coming to play.
4: Yeah, I don't know what Simon thinks but I think that's, that 11 there is the strongest Australian side of, of that time. Did you play against a better side than than that one? uh
2: looking at maybe 05 is not as quite as good as this side that, was a, that is putrid <laughs> as, <laughs> as a as a cricketer as an english cricketer exactly going and seeing that side it's horrific gillespie's in his, his prime he's yeah. going 95 miles an hour he's six foot seven wherever he is McGraw is the same you've got Brett Lee, who's young and rapid and you got worn um just turning around corners and that batting lineup is exceptional so as a as a, a cricketer, yeah, you would aspire to be in that side, but obviously not going to get in there anyway. Their second team would have beaten most people in the in, in the world anyway.
3: Yeah, and that was that was a mature side. That was we're talking we're talking kind of vintage Steve Waugh, vintage mm. Warren vintage um, vintage Gilchrist. You know, th- this was um, this was a side. The average age was thirty mm. um, in that side, which uh, was apparently the oldest um, Australian side since 1948. Uh, (laughs) and um you know that it just showed like these were guys who had who had been around a long time and they had learned that that winning those winning ways they knew how each other worked they were so Mm -hmm. used to to working with each other and they knew that they could absolutely rely on any one of them to to just go in and hit 100 on any given day imagine
2: being a captain as well with that bowling attack you're laughing at you you can pick any one of those boys to come on and break a partnership whenever you need it. You've got one who's just, obviously, ended up being a, a hero of the game. And with that batting lineup, you know you're going to get 400-plus every time you bat. It's just, it's just godlike.
3: And the irony is, talking about, you know, was, was England's confidence declining, it wasn't in one because Nasser had become captain, and we'd had our 1999 Nadir against okay, New Zealand, and actually we were we were supposed to be kind of we were supposed to be on the up. You know, Nasser was supposed to be bringing this new kind of grit and fire and um, passion into the team.
1: Were the fans' confidence going down though? As an England fan, were you in 01 thinking, "Oh, we've got a chance here," or were you thinking, "Er"?
3: I think I was... I, technical I,
1: term there. Or a technical term. Uh, I,
3: I think I, I had a certain amount of... Be, I've always had a certain amount of belief in, in changing captains. I mean, you know, this is exactly what I did when Atherton became captain in 93 and just kind of believed that everything was going to be rosy in a golden golden era. So maybe that's on me.
1: Well, it's a couple of years later, we, we sort of move the story on to the 2002-2003 series, um, down under in Australia. Simon, you, you come into the side at that point, I think mm. you played one test before that, yeah. but then you fly out to Australia. What, we'll, we'll come on to the, obviously the horrific injury you suffered in a moment's time, but what was it like sort of getting on that plane and, and going out to Australia?
2: It was obviously massively exciting I wanted to have a go at the Aussies. The Aussies, for me, are the the best team in the world, and they were at that time. Uh, And they were for a long, long time as well. So they were people i judged myself against uh, as a cricketer, and I wanted to test myself against this side who were the best in the world. Now, I was young, I was raw, and I was quick. I didn't really have a a real idea of where I was going. I used to run up and let it go. Um, But I was certainly going to go as hard as I possibly could at them and bowled as quickly as I could which was my job Steve Harmson was in the squad as well to do exactly the same thing um, me and him were vying for the same place I'd bowled slightly better than him in the warm-up games I know we had a bit of stick at Lilac Hill when the fans against getting in for him for bowling-wise um, wides. What,
1: no. what is that Australian crowd like? I mean it's kind of um, it's famously it's, aggressive and pantrous uh, to use that phrase it's,
2: Yeah it's not pleasant it's not pleasant Especially as a fast bowler, because you're a boundary runner, so you're getting the thick of it. Um, there's obviously a lot of words I can't repeat of, of what I heard, but yeah, they make you feel uncomfortable. Um, there's that corny line where they're the twelfth man, well they are, and they're drunk twelfth man as well. Yeah. <laughs> and as the day goes on, it gets worse and worse and worse. But that's how the Aussies are. They want to make you feel uncomfortable. They're winners, you know. They're a nation of winners. That, oh, that's the, the the picture they like to portray. So when you go out there, you now some of these young lads now on this tour going out there now it's going to be a bit of an eye opener for him especially in these warm-up games as well so it will be a test of character
1: Can I just ask because um, doing my research your father played for England yeah. as well and he toured Australia in 65-66 yeah. it was a drawn series uh, I think he took a six-wicket haul in Adelaide yeah. did he have any words of advice to you? Have you compared what notes on so what said, it was like going out there? He
2: said I was lucky because he used to bowl eight ball overs they had eight ball overs in those days I was like jeez that's a long day <laughs> <laughs> um, he just said, look, go out and enjoy It's an amazing place. The, the wickets are hard, fast, and bouncy. Um, just go and, and have a go and, and just embrace it. You've got people like Darren Goff, Andrew Caddick, and all legends of the game, Alex Stewart, etc. So listen to them as much as you can. Um, but go out then and just try your best and enjoy.
0: Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do?
1: And that first test in Brisbane, mm. the was saying, wins a toss. Wins a toss, yeah. And sticks you in. Yeah. Um, it's probably one of the most famous toss wins uh, in Ashes history, that. Yeah, you, then...
4: won't, you won't get through an Ashes dinner before <laughs> the Series without mention of NASA's uh, decision at the toss, I think. It's...
1: So we'll we'll go over that one uh, very briefly. That was that. Um, but obviously, Simon, your tour ends horrifically for you because you have that horrendous uh, injury in the outfield and yeah. then you're back on the plane home.
2: Yeah, it was. It was strange because we played uh, at the Allen Border Oval in, in Queensland uh, as the last warm-up game, and that's a beautiful place to, to play cricket. Yeah, I was sliding on Yardfield and you kept on going. It was just like a billiard table, or like a bowling green. It was just, it was just really nice. And me being young, I was 23, I think. Well, I was just oh, nearly 23. I just thought every cricket ground in Australia was exactly the same. We got to the, the Gabba we'd only had a light training session there we took a couple of catches got used to the environment and the size of the ground because it's, it's an imposing stadium it really is but I was looking forward to bowling on the wicket because it's, it's quick and it's bouncy yes it's, it's good to bat on as well but that's where you went you just went bouncing the wicket so I was really looking forward to that um, I was expecting the bat first if I'm honest uh, you went and toss you on test cricket you bat first on a good wicket as well but Nass I don't know what was happening on that day um, he yeah, got missing. Um, so, yeah, I was looking forward to the challenge, but Ricky Ponton was supposed to have done a, a fielding video for the ACB and he'd refused because of the state of the outfield. And we didn't know that, we weren't told. So, me being young and, and slightly dumb, went out and did exactly what I've done for the whole of my career. Um, and yeah, it was, I think the divot might still be there. <laughs> it was that deep. But to, to slide and feel the pain I felt and. I had a little bit of abuse from the fans. Uh, as I was getting stretched off. It was um, it was an experience, but you know, I was I was in the changing rooms on my own. Went off. Had a little think to myself of, how you know, is my career over? What am I going to do? How serious is this actually? Because the the pain I felt was incredible. Had uh, the scan. They said, yeah, you you haven't got any cruciate ligaments left. Uh, you're on the first plane home. So it was it was devastating, and I think it affected the rest of the team as well because. Um, they were excited to have me in the side. I was uh, the next young quick coming on, uh, on, the, you know, on the line and um, it was just one of those unfortunate things.
1: Well, luckily for you, it wasn't the end of your mm. career and in a short moment's time, we'll come on to the revival. So time for a short ad break now, after which we'll discuss England's revival and what the Ashes mean in the 21st century.
0: The first issue of Wisdom Cricket Monthly an Ashes Special is in shops now. To subscribe and save over £20, go to wisdomsubs.com forward slash
1: ashes. Right, part two of the Ashes podcast special. We're here in the England dressing room at Lord's. And in this half, we'll hopefully have some better memories for England fans and for Simon. Mm -hmm. Um, So the turning point in Ashes cricket in the 21st century was no doubt 2005. As England side took on the all-conquering Aussies and beat them in a thrilling series. Um, it didn't start so well uh, here at Lords. There was a pretty hefty defeat, 239 runs um, Simon, you were in that side, you are in that series There's so many stories to tell I don't really know where to start um, What's your sort of main abiding memory of 05?
2: It was the first day here uh, Normally we'd, we'd be in the change rooms And um, obviously be nervous You're going out to play for your, your country And the long room was generally quite subdued so we're coming down the stairs, expecting it to be as it normally is, nothing's happening, you've got the old, you know, old going, good luck, or this and that. But this time it erupted. And I mean, they went bonkers. Um, so we're all looking at each other going, what the hell is going on here? The hairs in the back of your neck are standing up. Um, and it was almost as if it was a good thing that we were fielding first because we could go straight out onto the field. And to experience that roar of the crowd as well when we went out, because as we said earlier, it was the first time in a long time they believed that England could beat the Aussies. And a very good Aussie side as well, probably one of the best they've ever had. So to experience that long room first of all, but to share it with the lads I played with for two or three years on the bounce was was even better.
3: That's so interesting to hear that your first memory of it is is the crowd being mm. really up for it because I, I think we all we all remember that series as you know something we kind of got sucked into and dragged mm. into, and you know it was just so exciting and there were so many ups and downs. But you. But actually, it sounds like there was a belief, certainly, you know, at least in the people who had paid money to be here yeah. from day one, that, that yeah. this was our time.
4: I've heard Kevin Peterson say something very similar mm. as well. It's obviously something that stayed with, mm. with all the players, mm. that, that moment, and how different it was to a normally quite staid kind of Lords, Lords members.
2: I, I, honestly, you wouldn't believe it. Because normally they are just, the members are very just chilled out and just enjoying the fact that they're in the long room. But then when they saw us coming through, they just went yeah crazy, and it was it was the best feeling in the world. It's one of the best I've ever felt. But to you know to bowl them out then for 190, I think it was, um, yes. showed yeah, that we could that, yeah. we could bowl them out. Yeah, um, we did it again. So we were you know we we had belief in our side as a bowling attack. It was just whether McGrath would would do his his thing in, at Lords as he normally does.
1: Yeah, I mean, he took five wickets in that match. I mean, every Mm. time McGrath came here, he Mm. just got on the honours board as if it was his right. Mm. Um, You still lost that match. It's Mm. still interesting the way that you took so much confidence from a defeat. I mean... uh,
2: It was one of the things, we we had such belief in ourselves as a side. We we all had a very balanced team. We all had different roles to play. But that belief was, was just always there. And Vaughn, I remember we sat up here after we'd lost and it wasn't really a loss, it was just stuffing. They'd beaten us in four days, yeah. or three and a half days. McGrath bowled brilliantly. Um, they'd batted well in the second innings. But it was one of those things where Vaughn stood up and he said, right lads, this test um, this series starts again at Edgebaston, it's nil-nil. Um, we've let you down here as a batting group. Um, we're going to move on to the next test and we're going to put things right. And we said, right, it's nil-nil, let's move on. And that's how we approached it. We didn't think we were losing 1-0. We just thought, right, we we'll start again at, at Edgbaston.
3: Talking about Edgbaston, I have wanted to ask, was there any kind of gamesmanship around um, around the talk about uh, how, oh, everybody, you put, you put the opposition in at Edgbaston because that's how you win. Hmm. Had, was there any kind of gamesmanship on the on the England team's part? Was, it, was that a ploy to, to make sure that Ponting did put... Put the put put England in when they if he won the toss.
2: I don't think there was any gamesmanship. I just think the fact, the sheer fact that they'd lost McGrath, and then he still won the toss and bowled was just, I just unheard of. I just couldn't believe what was going on. I was, I was in the dressing rooms and they got the speakers in the in the dressing rooms of the toss and, and everything that's going on and said Australia won the toss. So I like, so I was put my bowling boots on because uh, I thought right they they're going to bat because yeah. it's a very good wicker at Erge uh, baston there'd been some rain around yes they were thinking maybe it was some moisture but no there's no chance it's, it's slow and it was going to be slow and then it would get better and better um, and then when he said "Oh, Australia decided to bowl I just left in the air It's like you beauty <laughs> um, so any, any chance you get to not bowl is, is taken um, but yeah to to see them they, to me they seemed a bit as if they were a little bit bravados in there Right, we've lost McGrath we're still going to have a crack at you because the way they'd taken us down at Lords, and that was probably one of the biggest mistakes he's ever made
1: Big mistake but it only ends up in a two run victory yep. I mean it's it's a fantastic test match
2: Yeah it was and yeah, me dropping our cash on the boundary when I needed 15 wasn't the best best bit of my career but I think the fact What did that you think
1: of that time? Cause it's
2: I thought I'd lost the Ashes because if they'd gone 2-0 up it was game over one yeah. test was always going to be affected by rain or bad light or whatever it was so, yeah, there's no chance of us coming back. The best we could have had was a draw. But, um, yeah, to, to feel that way was, was awful. But the way Fred and Harmi had approached that morning was unbelievable. But Brett Lee and Shane Warne were exceptional, the mm-hmm. way they batted. But then I was thinking, right, they got Kaspervich to come in as well. And I played with Kaspar at Glamorgan. And he'd got hundreds. So I knew he could bat. And I knew he was dangerous. He's a big lad. He's 6'6". He can whack a ball. And he can hang around. He's got good, good techniques. So I was thinking, this game ain't over yet. This ain't going by a long way. Um, so then when Harmy nicked him off down the leg side and Geraint took that catch it was the first time I'd ever seen Geraint Jones angry really because of the sticky dad for the whole test match from the fans down the bottom the sea of yellow t-shirts he got on he was relentless and once he's taking that catch he's charging down there he's letting them know how he feels and it was it was just great to see Geraint having the go
1: it was a fantastic moment and from a sort of fans and journalists perspective, um, this was a moment where it sort of comes alive. The nation is starting to be captured by Ashes cricket. It's a feeling that there hasn't been in this country for a very long time.
4: Well, I just remember, I was just watching that, watch, <clears throat> watching that match on, on my own at home, and I remember my mum kept putting her head in and going, how are we doing? <laughs> and my mum had never shown any interest in cricket before, at all. And then to be saying, we... We, I mean, she'd never said that about any English sporting team ever. She <laughs> hates the football team. So it just kind of made me think this, is, this has actually got attention in a way that it, it never has before, certainly in my household. And then obviously we saw over the next kind of weeks, the next couple of months, that actually it took hold of the whole country. And you had London parks filled with big screens. Yeah. You had, I mean, terrestrial TV was obviously a huge factor in this. You had people tuning in to watch cricket who had never considered... The game. I remember, and Channel 4 did it really well, I remember, because they were very keen on bringing uh, cricket to a new audience. They do lots of kind of jargon busting and stuff. So I think it was quite accessible, quite an easy way to come into the game, uh, which perhaps isn't necessarily the same with Sky Sports now, because if you're watching it, you're assumed to be well, a you've, cricket you've, fan. Well, you've paid the
3: money to. to exactly. To watch so it, it so. felt like a
4: really, the, the whole thing felt very inclusive and really kind of captured the mood of the nation it's, it's incredible very
3: funny that that's your story about that that moment because I was also talking to my mother uh, at exactly this the, the same moment of that um, the Kasperitz catch um, but I was on the phone to her because she is a huge cricket fan she's the reason I'm a cricket fan and um, and we would just um, we, we would sometimes do this if if we were in separate towns <laughs> But <laughs> the cricket was really exciting, <laughs> and we we're both watching it. We would phone each other up. Did you see that? Did you see
1: that? We well, um, were watching it live on the phone. Watching it
3: live on the phone together. Um, I would. I think I was often phoning her kind of for comfort in a way because I just wanted my mum to tell me it was all going to be okay. Especially <laughs> at these kind of really nail-biting finishes we had in 'O five. When you know you could. Th- I. I mean, I'd never experienced. You know anything like that with sport before i'm cricket has always been my number one sport there are um you know there are other sports that i love like rugby so actually i had experienced stuff like that before i'm, I'm lying there was the rugby world cup but really you know for in in a cricket term you know this was it was a bit like you were saying earlier joe that because of what we've been through in the 90s for for those of us who only came to cricket like i did in the early 90s 05 was it was a real kind of it was a kind of physical involving experience because i hadn't had an 81 at headingley you know i hadn't had anything like this where i would seen my team involved in mm. something um so thrilling and so unpredictable that so that, that was it was For me, it was like a sporting high point that you know my career as a sporting fan has never achieved again.
4: There was also something about the way that England side played, I think. It wasn't just that we were winning matches. It was that you had Kevin Peterson smashing Shane Warne into the stands. It was that you had Simon, you had Harmeson hitting Ponting and Langer and drawing blood. Uh, that you had Triscothic and Strauss scoring 400 and a day at Edgbaston. Th- these were things that England teams hadn't really done before. And now it's easy to forget because that's the way test cricket is played but Australia had played that brand of cricket for a while but other teams hadn't really been able to mm. catch up and suddenly with Michael Vaughan obviously taking the lead on this and telling people to go and play their natural game mm. England was suddenly kind of mixing it up with the Aussies and could do it.
2: I think we were fortunate as well as a, as a bowling unit as a team that we all peaked at the same time uh, we were all in good nick and There was that confidence that we'd beaten um, beaten South Africa, beaten the West Indies, beaten New Zealand, beaten Bangladesh, as we should have done. But the confidence was so high. We just went into that series thinking, right, we respect these guys because of what they've achieved in the game. But we don't fear them. And I think that's the biggest thing, that so many England teams in the past have feared the opposition. Mm. We didn't. We were young. There wasn't any mental scarring in the side. You know, Legends of the Games that had been selected like Butch got dropped before the series so did Graham Thorpe for Ian Bell and Kevin Peterson it wasn't due to lack of talent it was just due to we went to the fresh changing room where people hadn't had these nightmare experiences against the Aussies in the past and we just went in there with a fresh new attitude and we wanted to go hard at these Aussies and see what they are really made of.
3: Another factor of those, of those really tight finishes was that often um, it, was, it was you guys, it was the bowlers who had to go in and um, you know just fight out those mm. extra dozen runs mm. or whatever it was that we yeah. were going to need. So uh, was that something that you were really aware of whenever you put on the pads?
2: Duncan Fletcher was massive. He was, he was huge for England. Uh, when he took over, when was it in 98 or 99?
4: Yeah, it was
2: before they lost to New Zealand. Because so. he was at Glamorgan '97 when they won, and he brought in this attitude where the the last four batters had to get 60 runs um, as a, as a unit. And he said, "You make those those bowlers and fielders stay out there for an extra hour, two hours, however long it takes. They're not going to be happy. They're beaten when they come out to bat." Then, um, so he said, as a unit, you have to work really hard together. And I was paired up with Marcus Scrothick. I think it's because we both didn't move our feet. <laughs> he's, he's quite a lot more talent than me though. Um, so yeah I was working with Trez regularly on my batting and it got better and better and then I was batting with Fred and, and at times back with Kevin. Uh, but it, the worst thing was when I was batting with Kev at Lords and Brett Lee was bowling fast. And I think I looked at the screen it was 96. And Kevin looked as if he was playing a medium pacer and I was facing, I just didn't see the thing I was just <laughs> thinking, please don't hit me, blah 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 trying to survive, stay around stay with Kev and that was the only eye and I had at times was how good the other batters on that side were when you actually bat with them, it was, it was frightening
1: And that series you go on, you have uh, Old Trafford, Pontings, 100 to save that game, Trent Bridge <laughs> England, 2-1 up and then the Oval, uh, we'll finish just briefly on the Oval, it's It's kind of Kevin Peterson's Mm. defining moment in in everything he's done in the game. That was a special moment with the skunk haircut and all that. And then winning that match on the final day. I mean, drawing it with that century. And then the party started.
2: Yeah. But to to see Kev, you know, he'd shown a lot of what he could do that that summer. Um, The way he played in the one day is taking Gillespie apart at at Bristol in that one day was just incredible. Um, And that, that... that last test, he just showed really what he could do. Brett Lee was hairing in because he wanted to try and you know, draw the series for for Australia. And Kev just played out of his skin. And I was so pleased for him. I'd missed that last test because of the ankle injury, but to be there and watch him achieve that was—I was so proud for him. And that's what we felt as a, as a unit. Um, the celebrations, yeah, uh, they live long in the memory the immense relief I felt and I think the whole team felt was like this weight had just been gone it just yeah. felt drained as if like all the air had been sucked out of you it was such a weird feeling after we told we won the Ashes um, so, so we obviously got st- stuck in the beers and the champagne and going out to celebrate doing the lap of honour and then we yeah it got messy um, and then we had to go on the bus and yeah, I'm sure you've heard enough of that. And there's a lot I can't repeat.
3: <laughs> it was a funny one to celebrate as a fan as well because, you know, for all of us we were waiting for that defining moment and everything. You know, there had been so many exciting finishes to the test matches and then and then to have it yeah. all build up to yeah you know what what what, at what stage I was actually I was at the ground um in fact I was supposed to be working I was supposed to be in the press box but I decided there was absolutely no way I was going to have my climactic moment of seeing England win the ashes in the press box where obviously nobody's really allowed to um you don't applaud you don't you know whoop it was it was it was gonna I knew it was gonna be silent because that's what it is it would just be like well no we're all very British you know (laughs) even the Australian (laughs) traveling press are very British at this stage and we We'll all but just pop our heads uh, we? we'll, we'll just keep typing. So I thought well, I've got to get myself out of the press room, and I went to the back of the stands. But but then there was this kind of this sort of anticipation. Of, well, at what stage will we actually finally, you know, all get to scream? Yeah. <laughs> you know, is it as the umpires walk back out and we realise it's all over? And in the end, we just had to make do with them kind of knocking the bales off. I
2: know that was that was a real strange one because it was almost as if he went under the radar. Yeah. Uh, he's obviously gone out to, to do his job and just to announce that the game is over. And we were like, we're all right. we were going down the steps. But as you said, we just wanted some fireworks or something. <laughs> uh, just, just something to happen and we just announce it to the whole fans. Because they were obviously with their umbrellas up and stuff, pretending it was raining. It was just really dark, wasn't it? Yeah. But um, it would have been, you know, but it is what it is. And then obviously the party started.
1: And then since then, the Ashes has sort of come back into public consciousness because it's actually... You know, it's it's England v Australia, and it's close. Um, Recent series have shown it's seesawed much more in in, in recent years. With England even winning down under in 2010, 11.
4: It's been funny though, hasn't it? Because we still haven't really had since 2005 a nail-biting series. 2009 was kind of getting there, but we haven't really had an absolute thrill. England's 10, 11 win was was so convincing. To win three Test matches in Australia, to win them all by innings. Was extraordinary, really. And then when Australia have beaten us, I mean, it's been obviously 2013, 14, let's not talk about that one. Um, it, it, it's just been, it, so it, we're still kind of waiting for that absolute thrill of a series to like 2005, and perhaps we'll never get it again. Maybe we were spoilt um, too much, too early. Um, but I think it's one of the things is that home advantage is, is so, so important now. And I think we're seeing this in this current tour that Australia aren't giving England proper opposition or proper pitches to, to warm up for the series. Yeah. And then it's very, very hard to stand up at the Gabba in front of 45,000 screaming Australians on the fastest track in the world and, and just start playing. Um, and I think we kind of do the same to Australia. When they come here, they get a sort of semi-second string county team. Um, anyway, so going off the topic, but I think ICC need to look at that. For the competitiveness of Test cricket, I think you need to have proper warm-up games ahead of series.
1: Does the Ashes still mean... What it should mean. I mean, this is a rivalry started in 1882. Um, it's one of the fiercest. Well, it probably is the fiercest rivalry in cricket. But with uh, 2020 cricket around now, uh, social media, people maybe not watching as much Test cricket. Is it? Is the Ashes still right at the top?
2: I think so. Yeah, I really do. I don't think that'll ever um, go away. It's just I think people, all people on the scene as fans and as as cricket fans, is the two best sides out there fighting against each other. And I think when the teams don't kind of match up or aren't quite as good as you think they they could be, then I think that's when people get slightly disappointed. Uh, I think the series will be a good series. I think there's a lot of young talent in that squad at the moment, with England and Australia. It's just, you know, we'd love to see Ben Stokes there. Um, from an England point of view,
3: it's funny, isn't it? We we always say, you know, we talk about the Ashes as you know, it's the greatest rivalry in, in cricket, and um, and we we talk about it like it's something that's got to be preserved, and obviously, I I definitely want to mm. see it preserved. However, it is it is an anomaly, and and certainly, you know, in a po- post-colonial world, there's no reason why why England against Australia has to be cricket's greatest. Um, you know, greatest series. I, it's it's an incredibly kind of English and Australian centric view that we have mm. that that the Ashes is is most important and and with the centre of gravity um, in terms of actual cricket popularity, you know, when when that has shifted so you know so obviously to to Asia, um, th- this this kind of protectionist attitude we have towards the Ashes is, I I think I think it's worth it's worth interrogating if not you know if not completely challenging mm. um i i love the ashes it means a lot to me but i totally appreciate that it may well not mean half as much to a great majority of the cricket loving global population and and that is also fine
4: it's but, interesting that is because it, it's just ingrained and you can kind of as em says you don't think about it too carefully it just becomes <laughs> it's the thing you get excited about and we've got india coming ...here next summer, which I'll be really excited for... ...but it doesn't compare to how I feel... ...looking forward to the start of an Ashes series. Staying
1: up late, you know, <laughs> well, listening to... I mean, there's There, a they, there's, there's, there, is, there is part of that beds, as well. You know, and that,
4: yeah. I mean, in India are a better side than Australia now... ...but I'd still, as an England fan... ...would want to beat Australia more than, more than I would India, probably. Um, what will be interesting is when we get... ...the World Test Championship uh, arriving in 2020... ...and you have a final of Test Cricket... That, in theory, should be bigger than the ashes. And in theory, I say in theory, should be bigger for England and Australia than the ashes as well, because that should be the pinnacle. That's what the ICC are trying to make that. Now, I'm sceptical whether... I think it's definitely worth a go. I'm sceptical whether it will will become that pinnacle, because it's so manufactured. But that is where we're meant to be heading. That is where the ICC wants us to be heading.
1: I guess it will never have the history of the ashes, which it can't do, because it's new and the ashes started in the late 19th century... Um, it's been fascinating discussing the ashes discussing the 90s 2005 Simon having Mm. your thoughts on that most memorable series just to finish off on the podcast I'm going to ask you if you could pick your worst moment from the 90s and then your best moment from 05 onwards and we'll
4: go in no particular order Joe I wonder if I'm going to steal Emma's worst moment from the 90s I bet I am Um, mine was watching Mike Atherton get run out here at Lord's was it yours?
3: (laughs) No, a, but no, that's okay, a great good. one. Um,
4: so it was my second ever day of live test cricket. I was aged eight at the time. I mean, everyone knows the story. Going, going back for a third run, he slips. <laughs> He's out for 99. And, I mean, you're not meant to say this in these parts, but I hated Mike Gatting for years because I blamed him for this. And I'm not even sure if it was necessarily his fault. But, it um, probably was, yeah. It seemed so unfair. We were getting beaten anyway. Why couldn't Atherton just get one more run and get his century at Lord's? The way he walked is, off as well. Oh, no. And, <laughs> and there's a photo where he
2: There was pure hate in his eyes.
4: There's a the photo where he's on all fours, kind of <laughs> trying to crawl his way back into the crease... Uh, and obviously it had two Murphys that ran him out as well just to <laughs> make matters worse so that was my worst
1: And your best from 05 onwards
4: uh, would be on the, the first morning at Adelaide in 2010 uh, when we had Australia 3 down when we thought Australia would be batting all day and if I was picked 1 it would be Jonathan Trott's run out there which again was a beautifully unexpected moment and really summed up that, that series I think Emma, your worst memory from the
3: 90s? So my worst memory, um, I would say, is not a moment specifically because um, it, it happens so many times that the memories have kind of um, blended into one. But really, what it comes down to is um, this, this repeated memory. It's like a nightmare that you keep <laughs> having over and over again. When England would be um, it playing the Ashes in Australia and you would wake up the next morning and I would run down excitedly to find out what the score was and it would turn out that australia were 200 for none and and that is (laughs) i I mean you know i have probably you know increased this to a huge size in my memory but but it felt like that was what happened every single time i woke up every every cold december morning i would wake up to langer and hayden or you know taylor and whoever had had put on a double 100 you know, partnerships. So,
1: your worst memory from the 90s was the 90s, and <laughs> your best memory since 05 onwards?
3: Oh, since I, well, I mean, to be honest, I, I really can't. For me, I said, I, I literally said that at the moment that England won in 05, uh, I turned round to my friend uh, Michael Simpkins, who was standing next to me, and I said, with my, my face was kind of purple with excitement, I said, Michael this is the best day of my life and I don't know what I'm going to do because what happens if I get married and it will never be as good as this this is always going to be the best day of my life and it still is so nothing <laughs> ever got better than that
1: fantastic and Simon just to finish with you the your worst moment from the 90s mine's
2: fairly obvious I think it's just seeing my Gatins' face um Shane Warren's ball was obviously incredible and he was a very good player of spin, he really was And just to see the amusement on his face the way Healy was laughing his head off Warren charges on a wicket with his bleached blonde hair and his his chubby, you know, outlook and just to see Gatting's total disbelief was unbelievable and just to see a legend of the game beaten so soundly by a a magic ball was was horrific to watch
1: And to finish on your best moment from 05 onwards You know what I'm
2: saying, just winning it in 05 but the, the celebrations after, don't get any better than that. Um, but just be part of that team was, was special and yeah, that's, that's the biggest one for me. I'm
1: obviously very biased and you're right to be so well thanks to my guest today it's been a great pleasure to have you all here and you've been listening to Aussie Dominance and England's Revival the final episode of this three part series in association with Wisdom Cricket Monthly remember to subscribe and download the podcast from all the usual podcast providers episode 1 and 2 are also available and for more information just head to lords.org forward slash podcast You've been listening to the Lord's Cricket Podcast, an Ashes special.